What an amazing song and what an amazing truth. I ask myself honestly from time to time, I ask the Lord, what was so good about me that God would send his son to die for me? Why does God love me? I don't have an answer for that. None whatsoever. I know God is love, but that doesn't explain why he loves me. I mean, I know what I am. And he still loves me. And he'll never stop. And it's a wonderful day in a Christian's life when they realize God is enough. You don't need what the world's advertising. God is enough. And I appreciate that song. If your Bibles are open to Joshua chapter number one, Joshua's assumed the mantle of leadership from Moses. Huge role that has been placed upon him, a huge shoes that he is being asked to fill. Uh, He's replacing Moses, the man of God, Moses, the man who saw God on the mountain, Moses, the man who heard God speak from the burning bush and and whom God used for uh, four plus decades to lead God's people. And Moses is gone and now it all depends on him. I'm talking from a human standpoint. He's being asked and commanded to do something that Moses never accomplished, and that is to conquer Canaan land. The Bible said Canaan, the promised land, was already filled with seven other nations. Deuteronomy 9 put it this way, Hear, O Israel, thou art to pass over Jordan this day to go in to possess nations greater and mightier than thyself, cities great and fenced up to heaven. Forty years prior to Joshua taking leadership, Israel ran in fear from that very land and that very command to to, to conquer the land. And now Joshua is being told, I want you to go in and I want you to conquer the land and I want you to understand I'm going to be with you and you're going to drive all of those nations out before you. Joshua's got a lot on him. Joshua's got a lot of pressure, a lot of responsibility, and he's got two and a half million people looking at him saying, well, you know, Moses did it this way. You know, Moses was like this, and you're you're doing it different, and he's got the same people that gave Moses an awful lot of grief out in the wilderness and, and all of that, and God said, I want you to lead these people. It's no wonder, therefore, that three times in the text we read this morning, God makes the same statement to Joshua. I learned as a younger Christian that when God repeats a phrase or a word in a particular text, that is God's way of emphasizing a truth. That is how God underlines or highlights the verse. That is how God shouts it out saying, hey, this is important. God repeats it. And there's a phrase repeated three times in the first nine verses. We see it in the first part of verse six. Be strong and of a good courage. We see it in the first part of verse seven. Only be thou strong and very courageous. Then we see it in verse number nine. Have not I commanded thee be strong and of a good courage. God understood what Joshua was facing. He knew Joshua's needs. He knew Joshua's people and he knew Joshua's enemy. 
He knew all about it. And he's telling Joshua, he is encouraging him, saying, Joshua, I know it's daunting. I, I know it could be terrifying. And, and I understand that 40 years prior, uh, the majority of people turned away in fear from this. But uh, I want you to just be strong. I want you to be of a good courage because I'm with you. And I'm not going to fail you in any way. Be strong and of a good courage. The word courage means to be steadfastly minded. It does not necessarily mean the absence of fear. It means the, over, the ability to overcome fear, to set fear aside, and to respond in strength. It means to be fortified within, to have something on the inside of you that provides a strength to take the next step. It means an intention to prevail. That's what the word courage means by definition. And as I look at Joshua, and as I look at all that he has to do, it's very easy for me to understand why Joshua would need courage. Never faced the giants of Anak. Joshua was going to have to do that. I've never faced walled cities like Jericho, but Joshua was going to have to do that. And on and on the list could go with the, the challenges that we're going to face Joshua. Um, he needed courage, and I understand that. But I want you to realize with me this morning that this command to be strong and of a good courage appears elsewhere in the book of Joshua. Turn with me, please, to Joshua chapter 23. Joshua chapter 23. Verse 1 tells us it came to pass a long time after. Many, many years have gone by. A long time after that the Lord had given rest unto Israel from all their enemies round about, that Joshua was waxed old and stricken in age. The wars are over. They are now in the history book. The battles are done. Jericho has fallen. Nation after nation after nation has fallen before the armies of Israel. As you read through the book of Judges, there were several times that some of these various kings banded together and it was four or five nations against one in a battle and God showed himself strong in miraculous ways and, and these people have seen what God could do and they now have rest. The land's been divided up. These people are living in the promised land. They're no longer living in tents and eating manna. They are living in houses and in cities. They have their own farms and, and, and they're, they're raising their own crops. And they are, they are in the land that flows with milk and honey. Joshua will, will tell them and remind them there hath not failed one word of all the good that, that God promised to us. So verse 2, Joshua called for all Israel and for their elders and for their heads and for their judges, and for their officers. It'd be kind of hard to call several million people together at this point from across the nation. So he called for all of the diplomats, all of the leaders of every rank, and he said, I am old and stricken in age, and ye have seen all that the Lord your God hath done unto all these nations because of you. For the Lord your God is he that hath fought for you. 
Behold, I've divided unto you by lot these nations that remain to be an inheritance for your tribes from Jordan with all the nations that I've cut off even under the great sea. That's the Mediterranean Sea westward. The Lord's your God. He shall expel them from before you, drive them from out of your sight, and ye shall possess their land as the Lord your God hath promised unto you. He has reviewed their history. He has, he's reminded them in a few brief words of all that God had done for them in, in the past years, just under his leadership. He takes no credit for anything. It's just the Lord. The Lord did this. The Lord drove out your enemies. The Lord's given you rest. And, 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 and the Lord has given you homes and all of that. And he's just exalting the Lord because as we sang earlier, thou art worthy. And Joshua is lifting that up before the people. Now he's an old man. He's ready to step off the battle. What are called and referred to in the early pages of the book of Judges, the wars of Canaan are over. Do you get that? They're over. Victory has been secured. Now look at verse number six. Be ye therefore very what? Courageous. Not to conquer Jericho. Not to conquer seven nations greater and mightier than you are. Be therefore very, what is it? Courageous to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, that ye turn not aside therefrom to the right or to the left, that ye come not among these nations, these that remain among you, neither make mention of the name of their gods, nor cause to swear by them, neither serve them, nor bow yourselves unto them, but cleave unto the Lord your God as ye have done this day. In these three verses, which by the way, comprise one sentence. This is one continuous thought. There's no mention of conquering a city. There's no mention of conquering another nation. What, what Joshua is saying is you need the same courage to obey the word of God that you needed to conquer the land of Canaan. He said, you need to be not just courageous, but very courageous. He said, there are nations around you and some uh, peoples left scattered among you, and they're gonna do everything they can to entice you away from the Lord. They're gonna try to tell you that, that, that their temple is better than the tabernacle of God, that their, their false God is better than the Lord God Jehovah. And they're gonna to try to get you to join with them and, and, and taint and pollute you. And you need to be very courageous to stand up to that and to stay right with God. And you need to be strong and courageous, verse number eight, to cleave unto the Lord your God as ye have done this day. There's another sermon involved in this. He said, but, but you need to be very courageous so that you and God are one. In Genesis chapter two, it was Adam who said after Eve was brought to him for this cause, shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they too shall be one flesh. Joshua is saying that is how you are to be with God. You're to cleave unto the Lord your God. 
So in all of this amazing statement that God, that I'm sorry, Joshua makes to the people of God, uh, keep yourselves right. Keep yourself separate from the world. Don't let the heathen influence you and change you in any way. Stay close to God. You need God as much now in peace as you needed him in war. And don't you ever forget that. And for that, you're going to have to be very courageous. As I was reading through my Bible this year, I know many of you are following the schedule that we passed out on January 1st or early January, and uh, you're, you're probably reading right along with me. When I came to Joshua 23 and I saw verse 6, be therefore very courageous, I was reminded of chapter 1, and Joshua's about to lift up arms and go against all these, these nations and these giants and all of these, these issues, and God said, be strong and of a good courage, and, and, and three times God repeated it, but there's no war here. There's no Jericho here. Years have gone by and he's looking to people at peace saying, you need courage to obey the word of God. I stop there. I don't just read my Bible and check it off because there I got it done. So I get brownie points in heaven, uh, probably get a ribbon or a badge, uh, you know, when I get there. I don't do that. Uh, I stop and think about it. And the Lord just caused me to pause. Why does it take courage to obey the Bible? Why do, why do we have to be courageous to obey the word of God? By the way, we're not the first ones in the, uh, or, 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 I'm sorry, these weren't the first people that needed that. And even in the New Testament, Paul had to write to Timothy. And he had to remind him, we'll look there in just a moment, but he had to remind him, Timothy, you need to stir up the gift that is in you. You need to get busy for God and you need to do what God wants and you, you need to put aside your fear and all of that for God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of a sound mind. That's kind of a great definition for what courage looks like. So why do you and I need courage to obey the word of God. There's several things the Lord brought to mind and, and I, I hope to bring them to your mind this morning. Number one, because you and I are called to walk by faith, correct? For we walk by faith, not by sight. Faith is a trust in God. Hebrews says it's the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not believed. Faith is grounded, Romans chapter 10, in the word of God. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So when I'm obeying the Bible, I am walking by faith, believing that this book is truth, that God is real, that God is everything he said he is and will do everything he said he will do. I am to walk by faith. And if I don't walk by faith, I'm not pleasing to God. For without faith, Hebrews 11:6, it is impossible to please God. When you're setting aside the Bible because you don't see it that way, you are displeasing God. When you say, well, I know the Bible says, but you are displeasing to God. A walk of faith says, I know the Bible says, so that is what I will do. Understand it. Here's why we need courage. Because every step of faith that we take has an enemy called fear. Fear and faith are their exact, exact opposites of each other. 
You don't have to turn for sake of time, but in 1 Samuel 17, Saul is the king of Israel. He's, a, he's been appointed by God, anointed by God to hold that position. He served God pretty well for about three years and God gave him victory after victory after victory. He never lost a single battle in all of that time. But Saul allowed pride to sneak into his life. And Saul kind of got to the point saying, you know, I don't think I need to ask the preacher, ask Samuel for every step. I, I don't think I need to do everything exactly the way the Bible says. I mean, I'm a good general. I'm a good king. I know what I'm doing. And he was, what the Bible says, no longer little in his own sight. Pride crept in. And God removed his hand of blessing off of Saul. And God had already warned him, said, I'm going to replace you with a man after my own heart. And that would be David. But that wouldn't happen for a long time. It was at this point in time that the Philistines sent their largest army ever to fight against Israel. The Bible said Saul and his armies were up on one side with a valley down below them and on the other side on another mountain were the Philistines and their army. And every morning this mountain of a man would come down out of the Philistine army all by himself save probably a young man called his armor bearer mountain of a man. We think by Bible terminology, he was somewhere in the realm of nine to 10 feet tall. Brother Rob, come stand beside me. I think he's a giant and he's six and a half feet tall. Go four feet taller than that. That's Goliath. May I remind you in the Bible, there were no good tall people. Thanks, brother. I'd get as far away from me as you can so you don't hit me for saying that. This mountain of a man. The Bible describes his armor. You and I probably wouldn't be able to lift it, let alone wear it and maneuver it in battle. He was a man who was trained for war from his youth. That's the way the Philistines worked. When a boy was born and old enough to walk, they started teaching him how to hold a weapon and how to use that weapon. And he went into training and that was Goliath. Massive, fierce, fierce where he was called a champion. Out of all that army of the Philistines up on the mountainside, he was the premier soldier. He was the ultimate ultimate weapon that they had. And he would come out every morning and he would issue a command saying, he said, here's what I want you to do. You send me out one of your men to fight me on man-to-man -man combat. And if he wins, we'll all serve you. We'll just lay down our weapons. It's over. We surrender and you win. But if I beat him, you lay down your weapons and we own you. And then he cursed the God of Israel, made fun of their God, and he did that every morning and he came back out every evening. And here's what the Bible says. The Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard those words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. This went on for an entire month. 
The man who used to go out with the power of God on his life and fight against that very Philistine army and he won every single time is sitting up here trembling in fear because you see, Saul had already made a decision. I am no longer walking by faith. I am no longer walking in submission, yieldedness and obedience to the word of God. Saul will do his own thing. Saul will do what is right in Saul's own eyes And he's no longer walking by faith and the only thing left is fear. You see, every time there's a step of faith involved, you mark it down, fear is gonna be right there saying, oh, you don't wanna do that. Oh, oh, man, you you don't want to do that. Uh, uh, that, That's far too risky. And and, and, and what will people think? And what will people say? And you might lose some friends. and, 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 And there's just no way. And fear starts working on us. And so we have a choice. Who do we listen to? Do I listen to the voice of faith that has never failed? Or do I listen to the voice of fear that has always failed? It's always there. It is always there. Brother Tim in our Sunday school lessons has been teaching through the book of Judges, just a marvelous series of lessons. We've been talking for several weeks about Gideon. Gideon was a man of faith, but he struggled with the whole concept of fear. And he kept needing reassurance. And by the way, I don't put Gideon down. I don't mock him because I've never been called to do something like he was called to do. I was never called to take an army of only 300 men and go against another army the Bible describes as grasshoppers in multitude that had camels as the sand of the seashore. I've never been called to do that. And over and over again, God had to encourage Gideon and Gideon had to decide, do I walk by faith or am I gonna let fear hold me back and hold me prisoner? Every step of faith we take fear will be right there. I remember as a young man going to a church like this for the first time riding a bus in and I heard the gospel message. For the first time in my life, I I got the truth from the Bible. That salvation wasn't about joining a church or getting some water sprinkled on my head. Salvation didn't come because I somehow managed to live a good life which nobody has except for the Lord Jesus Christ. That salvation comes only through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The price he paid on the cross to pay for my sin. And that salvation was only through him. And I understood it. They were clear about it. They were loving about it. They showed me from the Bible. There was no doubt in my mind that what they were saying was true. Then when the moment came, if you want to know for sure that you're going to go to heaven, come forward. We'll take a Bible and show you and help you help you receive Christ as Savior, at that moment, it's like the proverbial, the two little angels. I had faith knocking at the door of my heart saying, this is what you've been looking for. This is what you've been wondering about since you were a child. And on the other side was that voice of fear saying, you don't want to go up there. If you go up there and and make some kind of decision, your parents are going to be mad at you. If you get out of your seat and go forward, everybody's going to laugh at you, even though I didn't even know anybody there. And that fear was just holding me to my seat. And I was staying lost. And if I would have died at any moment, I'd have gone to heaven even though I knew the truth. Fear 
kept me from acting on. Some of you have a similar testimony. It took me four days of that. On the fourth day, I finally just told fear to shut up. And I got out of my seat and I walked down the aisle and let them show me from the Bible how to receive Christ as my saved brother Rob. I got saved because I decided to listen to the voice of faith, not fear. That fear is always there though, isn't it? I remember the night in June of 1974, as a 16-year-old boy, I was at a youth conference in Hammond, Indiana. There were two or 3,000 teenagers there, and I heard a sermon that Thursday night called The Generation to Come. I could give you the outline and the illustrations of that entire sermon now, some 50, 51 years later, uh, something like that, 50 years later, because it was so vivid and God was working in my heart. And I knew that night that for some reason, God was calling me to be a preacher. I didn't know if I'd be a youth pastor, an evangelist, a missionary, a pastor. I had no idea. I just knew that God had a plan for my life and that plan was not my plan. That plan was different. I was going to have to give up the full ride scholarship to the University of Pittsburgh and go to Bible college without a scholarship. I was going to enrage my unsaved father. By the way, my fear on that was very, very grounded because when my dad heard that I was called to preach, I got cussed out by my father. In Bible college, I got hate mail from my father. My fears were well grounded. I sat in the back of the auditorium that night and I wrestled with God. It was the longest invitation I ever sat through. I kept praying for God to make it end so that I could just move on my way, but it was unmistakable, but I did not go forward. I stayed rooted in my seat because fear was just governing every part of my being, even though I knew what God wanted me to do. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been there? I remember making a deal with God. Did you ever do that? Yeah, I made a deal with God, one that I knew I was going to win. I hadn't been saved that long in our church. The invitation was come forward to get saved, get baptized, join the church and get right with God. I'd never in my life heard a, an invitation. If God's called you to preach, come forward and surrender. That had never happened. It never dawned on my mind that it ever did or would happen. So I made a deal from God, one I was sure I was going to win. I said, God, if you really want me to be a preacher, make the man behind the pulpit give an invitation for guys that are being called to preach. I had got over a barrel. What an idiot. Not God, me. I didn't even get to say amen. And the preacher said, God's calling some of you young men to preach and you're fighting against it and you need to come forward right now and surrender your life to God. What do you do with that? I had no choice whatsoever but, but to get up and make that long, long walk down the aisle. And he, he was making us go up on the platform and he was going to pray with every single individual one. And the whole way I'm going down there, God, you're making a mistake. You're making a mistake. But God impressed it so strong. I knew God wasn't making a mistake. I know some of you think God made a mistake. But I know that being in the center of God's will for my life has been the most important thing in that decision on June 28th, 1974. Everything that has ever happened in my life since that night is because of that night. But fear was right there. I learned, how, I learned about soul winning in my youth group and in my church. I learned that soul winning was handing out tracts to people and asking them, 
hey, if you die today, do you know for sure you go to heaven? Can I show you from the Bible how to know for sure you're going to spend eternity in heaven? I knew that sometimes it meant knocking on doors. It meant talking to strangers. It meant talking to neighbors. It meant talking to classmates at school. And I didn't like to talk to anybody. I still don't. You may be very nice people. I just don't like talking to you. It's not my, and I'm just teasing, of course. Um, it's, it's not in my nature. My, my dear wife could talk to anybody. I never understood it. I stood amazed and mystified. How can you possibly do that? One time we were in line at Taco Bell. We'd been married for 25 years or something. And it was a long line. It was moving slow. And I actually got into conversation with a man that was in front of us and so forth. And as he was finally at the front of the line, he was making his order. Trina leaned in close and she said, I'm so proud of you. I said, what are you proud of me for? She said, you talk to somebody you don't know. I said, go away, just, just go away, just leave me alone. That whole idea of soul winning, in amazing, we can talk about anything in the world. We can talk about the rain, right? We can talk about politics. We can talk about traffic. We can talk about all kinds of stuff, but there's something that happens about talking about the Lord. And that voice of fear comes along. Well, if you talk to them about it, you might embarrass them. No, you're just worried not about them being embarrassed. You're worried about you being embarrassed. Or if you talk to them about the Lord, they might get mad at you. I've had people cuss me out. I've had people threaten me. I've had people swing broken beer bottles at me and all of that. So I understand all of that. And fear is trying to put all those things out there. But faith says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. It's a command, not an option. It's a command, not a spiritual gift. It's a command of God. But fear, man, taking that step of faith and passing out the first track. When I go out on a Saturday or any other day of the week, it's always the first door and the first track that are the hardest. After that, it's like, wow, I didn't die. This is going to work. This is okay. Every step of faith, fear says, no, you don't want to do that. You don't want to tithe. You don't want to tithe. You, if you tithe, you, you, you can't make ends meet. Even though God said, prove me now and see if I won't open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing upon you that you will not have room enough to receive it. That's what God said, but fear said, can't trust God. Every step of faith, every step of faith, fear is right there. That's why we need courage. That's why we need courage. I need to hasten. I've got 22 more points. I really don't. Why do we need courage just to obey the Bible? Just to obey the Bible because God's ways are not our ways. And sometimes God's ways don't make sense to us. The Bible says in Isaiah 55 verse 8, this is the Lord speaking to his people. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my way or your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. God's smarter than we are. That's what he's saying. I know things you don't know. I understand things you can't comprehend. So you, you need to trust my knowledge and my wisdom and my understanding and my leadership. That's, that's the, the teaching, the principle God's giving his people in Isaiah chapter 55. I have the privilege of living upstairs from my daughter and son-in-law, my three soon-to-be-four grandchildren. And I, I get to hear all kinds of things that goes on. Go, goes on. I love hearing Tommy sing in the morning. 
I, I love to sometimes hear Tommy and Nathan just sitting on the couch and they're discussing Mario like they both have PhDs in Mario. <laughs> TV's not even on, they're not even watching. They love watching YouTube videos of other people playing Mario. And then the two of them are offering their own, their mansplaining. A, a six-year-old and an eight-year-old, and I, I get to hear that. I also get to hear the other side of things. And, and the other day, Nathan was just throwing a fit, absolutely throwing a fit because he's not allowed to bring toys into the classroom. That's, that was his teacher's uh, edict and ruling because it distracts them, then they lose them, forget them, and then they're mad and all that. And uh, so they're not allowed to bring anything from home like that into the classroom. And, and Nathan was determined he was bringing books into the classroom. And, and I, I could hear Rob saying, no, no. Aunt Carla said, you're not allowed to do that. Yes, we are. And Rob saying, no, Aunt Carla said, no, you can have them in the car on the way to school. You can read your books, but you have to leave them in the car and then they'll be there. No, and, and this little six-year-old, he's, he's down here somewhere standing up to that. Is that not David going against Goliath in every way? And I mean the rage coming out of this little six-year-old. I thought it was hilarious because I didn't have to deal with it. But Rob is trying to keep a level head and deal with this little kid. And I, I heard Rob say, don't say one more word about it. Don't you say one more word or you're not even taking your books in the car. And it wasn't just a few seconds went by and Nathan said, but we are allowed to take our books in the skull. <laughs> Guess who didn't take any books anywhere? Because in this case, the big guy won. But isn't that the way we are with God? God, God tells us something. God teaches us something, and it, it, it doesn't seem to make sense to us. We've been studying through the remarkable story of Gideon and his army. Started out with 32,000 men against an army of 135,000. God said, that's too many. If you win the war, you might be, be, be tempted to vaunt yourself, Exalt yourself and think that you did it by your own hand. God said, they need to know that I did this. So he said, just ask, how many of you are afraid? And if you are, you get to go home. 22,000 men said, I'm afraid. Talk about losing your man card. What kind of a man stands in front of his friends and said, I'm scared and just goes home. Uh, they weren't worried about it because they figured everybody that was left was going to die anyhow. Who was going to tell on them? So Gideon's got 10,000 men. God said, still too many. Go down to the river. The people that scoot some water up in their hand and drink it that way, and they're kind of alert looking around, you set them over here, and everybody that sticks their face down in the water and just sucks it up like a dog, you set over here. One of those two groups is going to be your army. The ones who did it this way, 300 men. The ones who drank like a dog, or, or drank uh, with their faces in the water. 9,700, God said, send them home. Get in, you're going to do the battle with 300 men, and here's how you're going to do it. Each man's going to have a, a trumpet. That would be a shofar, a ram's horn trumpet. Each man's going to have that. They're going to have a clay pitcher, and they're going to have a lamp, and they're going to put it inside the pitcher. That's the battle plan. They divided themselves into three companies. They're now a hundred to a group against an army that, that was like the grasshoppers, the Bible says, in, in multitude. 
And in a given command, when, when, when uh, Gideon sounded his trumpet, they're all supposed to blow their shofars, that deep booming sound, in the middle of the night. Pitch blackout, all of a sudden echoing all across the hills. And then they're supposed to break the pitchers, and the enemy below is going to see the light from a hundred lamps on all these different hills. And God said, that's the battle plan. Does that make sense to anybody in here? You see, God's, God's ways are not our ways. But God always knows best. God sometimes leads us beside still waters and green pastures and all of those wonderful things. But the same God sometimes leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. He sometimes leads us into the presence of of mine enemies, but it is the same God. I need to trust his leadership and sometimes that takes courage to do so. We need courage to obey the Bible because faith always has an enemy called fear because God's ways are not our ways and sometimes they don't make sense to us. Number three, because God's ways will often set us at odds with the world around us. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 15. John chapter 15 and I'm just about done. John 15, look in verse 18. These are the words of the Savior. If the world, if you're already there, can you tell me the next word? Hate you. Boy, it's amazing how churches are today bending over backwards to make the world love us. We're supposed to love God, make sure God is pleased with us. And when we do, the Savior said, if the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. They didn't crucify Jesus because they loved him. You understand that? He goes on, if you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they've persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they've kept my saying, they will keep yours also. Now, he's not talking to us and telling us, let's go out and and, uh, make the world hate us. Let's be disagreeable. Let's be prickly. Let's be as nasty. Let's be rude. And he's not saying that. He's saying, if if you just live for God, if you just love God and you love the book and and you live a righteous life, I didn't say a self-righteous life, but a righteous life. You live a holy life. You live a clean life. You live a straight life. The world's going to hate you. How many like being hated? It it goes against nature. We don't want that. But sometimes to obey God means I'm setting myself totally against the unsaved world around me and fear once again just kind of breathes right in. At that moment, I need courage. Where do I get courage from? It's not something we muster up. It's not like I'm going to sit around. I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. That only works if you're a little train going up a hill. Where does courage come from? Number one is prayer. In Acts chapter four, they were threatened, told never ever mention the name of Jesus again, never preach about him again. And they had this amazing prayer meeting. They had this prayer meeting. They said, now Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word. Lord, they're threatening us. Stephen hadn't been stoned to death yet, but it was, it was coming just three chapters away. 
But Peter and John had already been arrested. They'd been threatened. And in the next chapter, they, all the apostles were going to be beaten. So the entire church is, is having a prayer meeting. And they said, Lord, you heard what they said. You've heard their threatenings. Would you give us the boldness to just keep going out and sharing Christ? Courage to obey God's word comes from prayer. That next step of faith comes through prayer. How else does courage come from? It comes from being filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.7 that God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. That's the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, the very first thing is love. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter four, after they prayed that prayer, the Bible says, and when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and they spake the word of God with boldness. Holy Spirit, I yield myself to you. I, I don't understand this. Holy Spirit, there are enemies. There, there's just a lot out there and I need you to fill me. Take control. Just take over. Just control my mind, my thoughts, my actions, my words. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Number three, surround yourself with godly friends. When David was out being persecuted and chased by King Saul, the Bible says in Jonathan, Saul's son arose and went to David in the wood and strengthened his hand in God. Surround yourself with godly friends. I didn't just say friends. By the way, I didn't just say Christian friends. Just because they say they're Christian doesn't mean you ought to hang out with them. I said, godly friends. If they gossip, they're not godly. If they lie, they're not godly. If they hold grudges, they're not godly. If they disobey the authorities God's placed in their life, they're not godly. It's amazing just that that simple little statement they just made, how many people started sucking in their cheeks. I'm sorry if that offended you, but it's in the Bible and you get to prove me wrong and I know you can't. Jonathan was a godly man and David needed him and his godly friend came and strengthened his hand in God. Surround yourself with godly friends. He that walketh with wise men shall be wise, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. And lastly, fill yourself with the word of God. This is where faith comes from. Faith thrives in this book. You close the book and fear is the only thing getting fed and it will take over. When God told Joshua, be strong and of a good courage, he went on to say this book of the law this book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous and then thou shalt have good success. Do you understand that courage and the word of God in Joshua chapter one, they all came from the same place. They're linked together. They're linked together. Wherever you are in your Christian life, there's always going to be a next step. I'm 65 years old. I'm a geezer. Just ask my kids. I'm old. I've got gray hair. It, it's there. I've got more aches and pains. And if you've got the time, I'll tell you all about them. I'm at that age. 
I'm at that age where we don't stand around and talk about sports. We, we stand around and talk about the last doctor's visit. It's just weird what getting old does to you. But at the age of 65, as long as I'm breathing, there will always be a next step of faith. There's always something else God wants. There's always something else that God's going to ask. And every time that step of faith is there, fear is going to whisper at me. And I need courage to step out in faith and just do whatever it is that God wants, and so do you. Can we bow our heads for prayer? You've listened very, very well.